Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 54 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you today? I'm okay. I, um, <laughs> my world is getting small and that's fine. I'm healthy and I'm here in Victoria. I know that's probably a unique point of view for anyone living outside of that at the moment in Australia or the world, but I'm looking forward to digging our teeth into this case. That's always a weird thing to say, but it should be a good one. Yeah, and the guy we're talking about is probably the, uh, the he has the opposite sentiment around him as uh, as Brett Sutton does at the moment. So. <laughs> Dreamy, articulate <laughs> chief health officer. <laughs> yeah, the guy we're talking about today is certainly not uh, regarded in that, in, that, in that way, but uh, we will get to all of that. Let's do our Patreon shout-outs first, Chloe. Yes, thank you so much and welcome to Jocelyn Kia, Beck Byrne, Tess Norman, Maddie and Simon Greeley. Thanks for the support, everyone. We sincerely appreciate it. And the case we're discussing today contains graphic descriptions of crimes against young children and some of the content is difficult to hear. So we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today we're talking about Mr Cruel. This is a case that many people will know. It's been well covered by many other podcasts and documented extensively online. For those who don't know, Mr. Cruel was a child abductor, sexual predator and presumed murderer active in suburban Melbourne during the late 80s to early 90s. He's uh, been quite accurately described as the bogeyman for children who grew up in the area at this time. The crimes attributable to this offender are some of the most calculated, meticulous and sickening we've ever seen here in Australia, but it's what we don't know, which is a lot, that makes this tale equal parts mysterious and downright frightening. Mr Cruel is unidentified, he's never been apprehended to this day, and Chloe, we try to strike a good balance with with our episodes with the storytelling, landing somewhere between detailed and digestible, but with this case, the devil's quite possibly in the details. So we made the decision to do this one in two parts to cover every piece of info we could find about the confirmed attacks attributed to Mr. Cruel and the details within those, uh, you know, descriptions, locations, all of the sights, tastes and sounds, etc. So if at all possible, this 
retelling might trigger even a faint memory in someone's mind and shed some fresh light on this case. We're going to kick things off with an audio clip in the introduction. This clip on an emotional level is probably one of the most upsetting I've heard in a true crime case, but it's something that we wanted to do to set the scene to paint the most serious and vivid picture of the fear and panic that was instilled in families across Melbourne in the late 80s and early 90s. Please bring my daughter Carmen back to home because all my family love her very much. Carmen, this is your favourite dress. You have to come home and wear it. Come back and dress it. Please. Please, my daughter! Oh, my family, family lover! Don't spoil my family, please! <sighs> Police believed that Mr. Krull's crime started much smaller and escalated over time. Things like snow dropping and peeping Tom type stuff. And then he moved on to abduction, and while it's commonly reported from Mr Krull's known crimes and victims that he had a specific victim type, being schoolgirls aged between 10 and 14, it's quite possible he didn't start out that way. We're going to run through in detail Mr Krull's known and officially linked crimes throughout the bulk of this episode, but we're going to take a few minutes at the beginning here to run over some of his possible earlier offending, the details of which haven't been made public. In her book, Cold Case Investigations, Dr. Xanthi Mallet, a well-known forensic anthropologist and criminologist, spoke with criminal psychologist Dr. Tim Watson Munro. He was retained by Victoria Police at the time these spate of crimes were being committed, and he said that Mr. Krull wasn't an exclusive pedophile. Prior to him gaining national prominence for his infamous crimes, he was active in Melbourne, I had been retained by the Victorian police to profile his offending, which exposed me to the full range of his actions. These included rape and confinement of an elderly nun in a Melbourne northern suburb, with him brazenly taking her car and her ATM card in order to drive to the local bank and steal her savings. There were a number of other crimes involving the detention and rape of adult women. In addition to Tim Watson Munro's points, some sources note that Mr. Krull may have even targeted a 14-year-old boy. Another attack unofficially linked to Mr. Krull is that of a 14-year-old girl in Hampton, Victoria, in 1985, almost two years before his first confirmed attack. Hampton is in Melbourne's southeastern suburbs, and this young girl was abducted from her home, tied, gagged and blindfolded. She was then driven to a nearby vacant building site and assaulted before being dropped off by the offender at the Moorabbin Bowl on Nepean Highway, having endured several hours of repeated assault. It's this attack, or perhaps another, which occurred in Donvale under similar circumstances, that the offender said words to the effect of, my liberty, my freedom is more important than your life. These words are commonly attributed to Mr Krull, although the attack or attacks where he supposedly said this haven't officially been connected to him by authorities. It's just another area of uncertainty with this guy. There's a small amount of information out there too about a child sex offender active during the mid-80s 
in the east and southeastern suburbs of Melbourne who was initially dubbed the Hampton Rapist. Some sources say that police think this guy might well be Mr Cruel and that he potentially had between 12 and 14 victims. Other sources, such as Sylvester and Rule in their Underbelly 5 book, note that the police ruled this out, determining this series of crimes to be a second offender. But let's get into the meat of what we know for sure. It's the 22nd of August, 1987, in the northeastern suburb of Lower Plenty. It was still winter. The trees were budding, but spring hadn't struck yet. Someone was about to strike, however. A man wearing a dark blue balaclava readied himself in the darkness near the intersection of Parra Road and Main Road. He knew the house, his target, his victim and their family's routine. He'd studied them extensively over the past days, weeks and possibly months. He crept stealthily through the yard and up to the house, where he used a long carving knife to jimmy a pane of glass out of the living room window. After opening the window, he slinked inside with his canvas bag full of pre-prepared items and removed a small dark handgun before making his way to the parents' bedroom. Do you feel brave, he said to the startled parents in a gruff, neutral accent, brandishing the handgun and knife. He then handcuffed the parents and forced them to lie on their stomachs. Be quiet and don't move or I'll hurt someone, he said. The terrified parents, worried for themselves but more so for their children in the nearby rooms, obeyed the intruder's demands at this stage, unsure of what he was after. All I want is money, food and clothes. How much money is in the house? He asked the parents. The demands didn't stop there. He queried the size of the father's clothes. He wanted a shower, a shave and a first aid kit. The impression was beginning to form that this guy was probably a transient criminal, a drifter, Maybe he'd escaped from someplace and was after a quick hit, build his cache and keep on moving. And if his intention was to make the parents think this is a diversionary tactic to conceal his true motive, it worked. The masked intruder then brought in the couple's six or seven-year-old son from his bedroom, bound him to the bed, and then he brought in the couple's 11-year-old daughter and bound her next to the rest of the family. At some point, he uncuffed the parents and decided to tie them with nylon rope, reportedly using a type of knot commonly used by people who work in shipping or the Navy. In some sources, it was referred to as a diamond knot. He then gagged them all with electrical tape and blindfolded the parents and the boy. Get in the wardrobe and sit down, he ordered, before throwing a blanket over the parents. Then he made a phone call within earshot of the entire family. During this call, he was threatening violence to the person at the other end of the line, a person he referred to as Bozo. He told this Bozo that they needed to move their children or they'd be in danger. Then he abruptly ended the call. But here's the thing, Chloe. A later check of telephone records would show that this call never actually took place. It was one of many red herrings we'd see throughout this series of attacks. Mr Krull then locked the wardrobe with the parents inside, The son, I'm not sure if he was inside or still bound to the bed, but needless to say, he was immobile and probably terrified. Mr. Krull then returned moments later with the radio and blasted that for all to hear while he got to work on the real reason he'd broken into this house, to sexually assault 11-year-old Jill, which is not her real name, by the way. Her name has never been made public. Although she'd told him her name when he asked, Mr. Krull repeatedly called her Kate throughout this ordeal. 
From the bedroom, the parents and their son could hear commotion in the bathroom, but probably thought the drifter was simply having that shower and shave he'd mentioned and was gradually ransacking the house. But he wasn't. For two hours, he repeatedly raped young Jill in the bathroom, then walked her through the house and into the kitchen midway through to fetch himself refreshments. Here he had some leftover lamb, biscuits, some milk and orange juice, before walking Jill to the lounge room where he continued to assault her on the couch. After this, Mr Krull went and checked on Jill's parents before returning and taking her to the spare room. Here he bound her ankles with nylon rope and left with his stash that he'd stolen from the house. This included a box of classical records, a dark blue coat with a fur collar, $250 cash, a shirt, a pair of trousers belonging to Jill's father, an engagement ring and a Gillette razor. Jill managed to wriggle herself free and untie her parents. Jill's father had to go next door, bellow and wake the neighbours to report the attack as their phone didn't work. It had later become evident that Mr Krull had cut the phone line in the house. The family's description of the offender is detailed as follows. Aged in his 20s or 30s, 175 centimetres tall, slim with brown hair protruding from his balaclava. There were spots of grey in his hair and bushy eyebrows, though. He had a gruff, deep and slightly nervous voice. His breath was described as being musty and he had a couple of days beard growth. He was wearing blue jeans with a brown tweed sports jacket over a blue waterproof zip-up jacket. He had on blue runners with white soles and white flashes down the side and they were in good nick. He wore gloves that appeared and felt like yellow dishwashing gloves and the balaclava he wore was described as being a bit different to the one we commonly associate with his future attacks, the one with the stitching around the eyes and mouth. This one was dark blue and more open-faced, like a ski mask, but he's possibly worn a stocking over his head underneath his open face mask to further conceal his identity. The Herald Sun itemised the arsenal Mr Krull arrived with in his material canvas bag, which was blue or grey in colour. He'd brought along a small black handgun, the kitchen carving style knife, black handled with a silver blade, around 20 centimetres long. He had at least four sets of handcuffs and three rolls of electrical tape, a roll of each red, green and blue. He also had some elastoplast band-aids and presumably the nylon rope, although this wasn't on the Herald Sun's list. Very much a calculated, meticulous and brutal attack here, the first attributed to Mr Krull. But interestingly, with some differing details to what we later see, mainly in the clothing, mask, his voice being gruff and possibly uneducated, we'd later hear him described as softly spoken, and the fact that he stayed in the house with his victim. But MOs evolve when offenders figure out ways to better control and manipulate situations to get the outcome they desire, an outcome which often escalates in itself. There were also a number of similarities with later attacks in the way he acted, bound the family, cut the phone line and used red herrings, and the overall scope and theme of the attack, his attire and the arsenal that he carried. This attack on the unidentified Jill wasn't covered in the press in great detail. That would occur with the next attack, because we'd see this time the first abduction take place. 16 months later, on the 27th of December, 1988, a man staked out his target in the quiet outer suburb of Ringwood, half an hour to Melbourne's east. 
The festivities of Christmas and Boxing Day had just passed for many families in the area. The Wills family had a day of shopping, Boxing Day sales, and returned home in the afternoon to their residence in Hillcrest Avenue. They enjoyed a family dinner and went to bed later that evening. Ten-year-old Sharon shared a bedroom with her three sisters, twins Robin and Linda, who were eight, and youngest Annette, who was five. John and Julie Wills went to bed in their master bedroom, but at around 2am, John awoke. He'd been having trouble sleeping, so to help calm his busy mind, he began working on a jigsaw puzzle. He was at it for a few hours until 4.50am in the morning when he decided to pack it in and try and get some more shut-eye, turning the light off and heading back to bed. Presumably watching from the shadows this entire time was the navy blue clad Mr Cruel. He lurked, watching from the darkness, waiting for the right time, which happened to be within an hour of John going to bed. At 5.45am, wearing a blue balaclava, gloves and dark blue overalls, he approached the Wills family weatherboard home. He knew from the number of hours he'd staked out the family that all four girls slept on bunk beds in the same room. He also knew how to get in. The Wills family routinely left their front door key inside of the lock, but on the inside of the house, not the outside. You couldn't get to it or unlock the door if it was locked from the outside. But Mr Cruel, who knew this detail from his reconnaissance, had come prepared. He slinked up to the door and with some sort of device, possibly some wire or something he'd custom made, he poked through the lock and dislodged the key onto the floor inside the Wills residence. What he'd cleverly done before this was slide a piece of newspaper under the door so when the key dropped, it didn't clink on the floor. The paper caught it and he was able to then slide the newspaper back under the door with the key on top of it and then gain entry by simply unlocking the door from the outside. John Wills woke moments later with a gun to his head and a ski-masked intruder calmly saying to him, you're not going to do anything stupid, are you? You're not going to be a hero? Julie Wills, well, she couldn't stop screaming, understandably, frightened out of her wits at the sight of a gun-toting intruder in their bedroom. Mr Cruel wasted no time in binding both John and Julie, this time using copper wire. He then demanded money. The Wills directed him to where Julie's purse was, which was outside of their room. As he was retrieving the $35 he'd later leave with, Mr Cruel then cut the phone line to the house. Sharon and her sisters were sleeping peacefully in their room when Sharon awoke to the sound of someone whispering her name. She faked being asleep and the man again said her name, Sharon, clear as day. He then picked her up abruptly from her bunk bed and she saw a glimpse of the masked, darkly dressed man before he then put a blindfold on her, shoved a small ball into her mouth and taped it shut to gag her. He picked up a few items of Sharon's clothing as they left the room He then wrapped her in one of her father's shirts he'd located within the house. He also took John's jacket as well and made Sharon wear this over her pyjamas. Then he left the home, carrying Sharon under his arm. John and Julie struggled their hearts out for 15 minutes before they were able to untie themselves and get into the girls' bedroom. The three youngsters were either still asleep or scared out of their minds. John and Julie certainly were. John absolutely panicked when he realised Sharon was missing. He quickly realised the phone line had been cut, 
bolted next door to alert the neighbours to call the police before taking off on foot around Ringwood to try and locate his daughter. Detectives said the man, armed with a pistol and wearing a dark-coloured balaclava, was intent on capturing the child and had possibly loitered in the area for several days before raiding the Hillcrest Avenue house yesterday morning. We're dealing with a very cunning person, a person who we regard as very dangerous and uh, an unknown potential. Some describe him as a monster and I think that's probably accurate. The Wills were completely and utterly terrified thinking about Sharon and what was happening or had happened to their daughter. Both John and Julie thought they wouldn't see her again. Police responded quickly, conducting door knocks in the area. They scoured the streets on foot, searched cars and set up an information caravan for public tips. But it was all to no avail. When no sign of Sharon was found, no trace or clue as to where she might have been taken, the hopes of the Wills family began to fade. But then this happened. About midnight, a woman motorist spotted Sharon wearing a man's white shirt, walking along Orchard Road, Bayswater, soon after she'd been dumped from a car. With a policeman's jacket around her shoulders, the girl was taken to the Austin Hospital for a medical check. This morning, she was brought home, cuddling a teddy bear and in the arms of her father. Police said Sharon had been assaulted, gagged and kept blindfolded throughout the ordeal. An emotional Mr Wills was grateful to all who assisted in the search for his daughter. I'd just like to thank all my friends, my neighbours, my relatives. I'd like to thank the media for your coverage and your assistance to get my daughter back. And most of all, I'd like to thank the lovely lady who buys water. Thank you. 18 hours after her abduction on the 29th of December, a woman had found Sharon Wills on a street corner in Bayswater just after midnight. Sharon said to the woman, quite calmly, My name is Sharon Wills and I was taken from home early this morning. A man left me here and told me to go ring home. The woman later commented that Sharon was quite bright and seemingly in good spirits considering the ordeal she'd been through. The woman took her home and gave her a drink before contacting authorities. Sharon was quickly reunited with her parents and sisters who were beside themselves at seeing their little girl and older sister alive and well, at least on a surface level. The information and insight Sharon was able to provide police about her abductor and her ordeal would prove to be incredibly detailed and vital to the investigation. Sharon said that her abductor had been very calm in his demeanour and reassuring her that he wasn't going to hurt her, that all he wanted was a ransom from her parents. Once that was arranged the following morning, he'd let her go. As we know, this was of course a ruse, as assaulting Sharon was his only end game here. He drove Sharon around in his car for a time before taking her to either a house or flat where he then sexually assaulted her a number of times over a number of hours. He was gruff, as had been described in the earlier attack, but only a couple of times. Mostly Sharon said he was quietly spoken. He made her shower, clean herself up real good in his words, and told her to brush her teeth. In between assaults, he gave her a glass of milk, some lemonade, and a Vegemite sandwich. For the most part, though, she was restrained on the bed with a neck brace-type contraption, and she was blindfolded the entire time. 
Sharon, the brave little soul that she was, decided to sneak a peek one time, though, when she knew her captor wasn't in the room. The first thing she saw was a video camera on a tripod at the end of the bed, clearly in place to film the assaults for his future purposes. Sharon described the room as follows. It had peach-coloured full-length curtains over the window to her right, a black, grey and brown blanket over the nightstand straight ahead. She was on a double bed with a peach-coloured bedhead and white-patterned doona. There was a yellow and white-striped lampshade over an orange or peach-coloured lamp base, a pair of bedside tables with a radio perched on one to her left, and the room had beige or cream-coloured carpet. Sharon also got a look at the bathroom at the place where Mr. Krull took her. It had a pedestal-style hand basin at the back left of the room. The shower door slid left from the inside. There was a beige or cream-coloured bath mat, and a bath sat in front of the shower set in a hob. So this was vital information for police. They were learning a few things about this offender here in addition to the description of his lair as well. He was collected and almost pleasant to Sharon when he wasn't assaulting her, and he'd gone to painstaking lengths to remove any evidence of himself at the crime scene and on Sharon herself. Forensically, he'd left no traces of himself. Sharon's medical examination found no foreign DNA samples. He'd dumped Sharon at the high school in Bayswater there and dressed her in a green garbage bag taped over her head with tape over her eyes again, going to lengths to make sure that she didn't see him. Police found no fingerprints at the Wills house, no clues as to who this guy might have been. One thing that they did piece together was that he had undoubtedly scouted out the Wills family for some time in preparation for this attack, and they theorised that he'd actually seen and targeted them off the back of a local newspaper article that had been published earlier in 1988. Months earlier this was. In this article, it told the story of how Julie had saved Sharon from a burning bed due to a faulty electric blanket. Police believed Mr Krull had seen this article and targeted Sharon from this point on. So we're getting a sense here of the planning, the calculation that's going into these attacks and the lengths this guy is going to to ensure he remains unidentified, both forensically and literally by not letting his victims see him. It'd be a further 18 months until Mr. Krull struck again, and this time it wouldn't be during the blistering hot Australian summer over the Christmas New Year period, but in the midst of a cold grey winter in an affluent part of Melbourne's inner east. Interestingly though, like the Christmas New Year period, this next attack would again take place during the school holidays. It was the 3rd of July 1990 in the suburb of Canterbury, and Mr Krull had been staking out a property occupied by the Linus family on Monomeath Avenue for some time. Again, he knew their routines and had planned everything for his attack in excruciating detail. Canterbury is quite a wealthy area, older upper-class homes in very much an insular pocket, tighter tree-lined streets in Canterbury as opposed to lower plenty in Ringwood, Both of these previous areas had easier and faster access to major thoroughfares for escape purposes, and they were also a bit broader in their layout, which would have aided in his surveillance and recon activities. Canterbury, however, was a much harder place to blend in and avoid detection. On this night, July 3rd, parents Brian and Rosemary were at a farewell party. They'd been living in broader Melbourne for three years by this point, when Brian had uh, initially been transferred from his employer Price Waterhouse back in England. 
This was to be their last week in Melbourne before they returned home to the UK. 13-year-old Nicola and her 15-year-old sister Fiona were home alone. Not an uncommon thing for them or many children of that age back at this time. They'd had some pizza and hit the hay sometime before 11pm. They stayed together in the same room this night as they were alone. Unbeknownst to them, a masked man outside had crept up to their parents' bedroom and obtained entry to the house through the window. Mr Cruel hadn't made national headlines just yet, but he soon would. At first, he was actually dubbed Mr Cool, which is far too positive sounding despite it being somewhat accurate in terms of how the man carried out his crimes. But a quick-thinking newspaper sub-editor quickly pounced on this and changed it to Mr Cruel, which ended up sticking in the press. Across Greater Melbourne, however, his previous abduction of Sharon Wills some 18 months earlier was known, but publicly the panic around this man striking again had somewhat subsided. Mr Krull's twisted sexual desires, however, hadn't subsided, only simmered. He crept into the girl's bedroom and tapped on Nicola's head with the end of his large carving knife. She startled awake to see a man in a balaclava standing over her, the knife glistening in the moonlight a gun in his other gloved hand. He spoke calmly to both Nicola and Fiona, telling them he just wanted some money, but he left them in no uncertainty as to how serious he was. See this here? This is a really sharp knife. This is a real gun. Shoots real bullets, he told the sisters. With the threat of the gun looming, he then led the sisters around the house to where the family kept their money. But as we know, this was all part of the distraction. He didn't take any of the cash, which included $4,000 worth of traveller's checks. Instead, he took the girls back to their bedroom where he proceeded to hogtie Fiona on her stomach with a length of clothesline cable he'd prepared earlier and brought along. The real motive for his intrusion would now come out as he ordered Nicola into her room and told her to get her Presbyterian ladies' college blazer, tunic and her shoes. He put his arm around Nicola's shoulder and began leading her out of the house, calm as you like. He stopped briefly within earshot of Fiona, who was still bound on the bed in the other room. He told her that he'd release Nicola the following day if her father organised a $25,000 ransom payment for him. They then left the house, with Mr Cool keeping Nicola in the same position, his arm around her shoulder, for an extended period of time. Nicola realised during this time that he was of a similar height to her, around 175 centimetres tall. The man told her to keep her eyes closed at all times and not look at his face. This is National Mind News. Good evening, a ransom demand has been made for the return of a 13-year-old schoolgirl kidnapped in Canterbury. The master-armed abductor grabbed Nicola Linus from her parents' home over 18 hours ago. Police say the man forced a window at the back of the Linus home in exclusive Monomeath Avenue just before midnight. 13-year-old Nicola and her 15-year-old sister were asleep in a bedroom. Their parents were out at a dinner party at the time. So Mr Cruel had stolen the Linus family's own car for the getaway this time. This was a rental car, a Holden Berliner. He drove this away for only a kilometre or so to Chaucer Crescent before he got Nicola out of the Bellina and into another car of his own. From here, they drove up and down numerous streets, which Nicola felt was quite purposeful to throw her off the direction they were ultimately headed. Mr Cruel had blindfolded Nicola with tape during the car changeover, and he made her sit on the floor beneath the dash with a blanket over her head. 
When they arrived back at his hideout, he removed this tape and re-blindfolded her with cotton eye pads, which he taped to her head. When Brian and Rosemary arrived home 20 minutes later from their farewell party, they found Fiona bound on her stomach in the bedroom and Nicola nowhere to be found. They were stunned and terrified, as you would be, to hear what had happened from Fiona and they immediately called the police. The authorities quickly ascertained from the details of the abduction that this was the same man who had taken Sharon Wills some 18 months earlier. She had been returned alive after a torturous ordeal where she'd been subjected to repeated sexual assault. From the Linus family's point of view, that was sickening to consider, but it also gave them some hope that Nicola would be returned alive and well. But then twice the amount of time passed, with no breakthroughs in the investigation. Again, this abductor had left no forensic traces of himself or any clues as to where he'd taken Nicola. 36 hours had elapsed. If we recall, Sharon Wills had been returned after 18 hours. At this point, Brian Linus addressed the media to plead to the public for any information. Good evening, and the father of the 13-year-old kidnapped Canterbury girl pleads for her safety. Brian Linus says he will do anything to have his teenage daughter released. Brian Linus should have been preparing today for his daughter's 14th birthday. Instead, he was appealing for her safe return. We'd just very much like uh, to have Nikki back uh, with us, obviously. Can't wait to have her back with us. Nicola Linus has now been missing for 42 hours. 20 detectives are now working on the case. This was a packed press conference where Brian explained that his daughters had been left by themselves as he thought Australia was much safer than England and that Fiona was about to turn 16 and she'd said she didn't need a sitter at that age. Brian and Rosemary had seen the freedom the girls had had here, the safety they had on the trams and the streets. It wasn't like London at this point, and they agreed, thinking the girls would be fine. Brian pleaded for his daughter's safe return and indicated he was prepared to pay the $25,000 ransom the abductor had mentioned to Fiona. 50 hours then passed and no signs. It was now Nicola's 14th birthday, wherever she was, whatever she was enduring. And just before 2am, a resident of Tennyson Avenue in Kew, which is just five kilometres away from Canterbury, heard their doorbell chiming. At the door was 14-year-old Nicola Linus. She'd asked to use the phone and called her father. The Linus family had their youngest daughter back alive. Nicola was taken to the Austin Hospital where she was medically examined by forensic physician David Wells. She was medically in good shape. Psychologically was a different story. But the raw emotion running through the room when Nicola was reunited with her sister and parents brought the entire family, the medical staff and hardened police detectives to tears. Nicola had been driven to Kew, walked around by her abductor, Mr Krull, for a few minutes before she was dropped near an electricity substation and made to sit with her head between her legs while Mr Krull fled the area. He left Nicola clothed, wrapped in a blanket, her eyes taped, and she was dazed for a number of minutes before staggering to nearby Tennyson Avenue to ring the doorbell. The details of her abduction and ordeal would provide authorities with a number of additional puzzle pieces to put together in the hunt for this predator. Nicola had been blindfolded and bound throughout her entire 50-hour ordeal, but Mr Krull had been anything but. She described him as affectionate and chummy, and he never appeared violent. Like Sharon Wills, she too had been given food and beverages, but these were mostly scraps like bread and water. 
After her first assault, she was bound to the bed by her neck with some kind of brace or leash. Mr. Krull assaulted her repeatedly on and off over the coming days. He called her Missy as part of his many fantasy games, dressed her in a tennis outfit at one stage, and somehow managed to intertwine elastoplasts into one of these games as well. Like he did with Sharon, Mr. Krull insisted on Nicola cleaning herself thoroughly in his shower and brushing her teeth. One time, he even fell asleep next to her on the bed after one of the assaults, and he was acutely aware of the media reports of the case and her father's offer to pay the ransom. Mr. Krull had again deployed his radio to cover up other noises Nicola may have heard. One thing he couldn't hide, however, was the sound of aeroplanes coming into land, which Nicola reported hearing before 10am. She could tell the time from the radio news updates. Details of these sounds were later supported by Sharon Wills, as was her description of the room where they'd been held. Nicola described Mr. Krull as being around 175 centimetres tall with reddish-brown hair. And now police knew they had a suspect who potentially lived in the flight path of Tullamarine Airport, Melbourne's main airport to the north of the city. But this flight path covered a number of suburbs, from Craigieburn through to Strathmore, really, so it was a big area. The Linus family returned to England six days after Nicola was released, and although physically unharmed, Nicola had to live with the emotional scars inflicted by this predator, as did Sharon Wills. Police had clues, but again, no physical evidence to lead them to any suspects. This man was proving exceptionally elusive, precise in his planning and execution of these crimes. Effectively, a ghost was roaming the darkness, stalking innocent families in the otherwise safe suburban Melbourne. It'd be within the year we'd see him strike again, the downtime between attacks less this time, but we'd see a very different and tragic outcome this time around. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. John and Phyllis Chan met and married soon after arriving in Australia from their native Hong Kong in 1976. Within 15 months of arriving here, the land of opportunity they saw before them Phyllis and John had built up two successful Chinese restaurants called Ming's. One was on Main Road in Lower Plenty, an area we've heard about before earlier in this tale, and the other was in the Bulleen Plaza. 
The Chans initially lived in Bulleen with their three daughters, aged 7, 9 and 13. But when things got better for them financially, they bought a property in Surples Road, Templestow. This was worth around $1 million at the time and the Chans owned it outright. Described as a suburban fortress, the triple block in Templestow's Golden Mile had a two-metre-high front fence with electric front gates and 18 rooms in total, including five bedrooms, a study, three bathrooms, a gym, spa, sauna, pool and a tennis court. The Chan girls all attended Presbyterian Ladies College, again, another location we've already heard in this story so far, and all of the girls took language lessons in their native tongue, which was Cantonese. Their eldest daughter, 13-year-old Carmen, was described as polite, charming, hard-working and enthusiastic young girl. She had ambitions of becoming a barrister, and at this time in 1991, Carmen took tennis lessons every Saturday at the Camberwell Tennis Centre. Not the first time we've heard of tennis in this tale either. It was Saturday the 13th of April, the first Saturday of the school holidays. Autumn was upon us here in Melbourne and Carmen and her two younger sisters, Carly and Karen, were excited at the prospect of having some time off together during their school holidays. Carmen had been to tennis that morning, gone with her mum to the library to do some study. She then had dinner at the restaurant with her mum and sisters before an employee from the restaurant drove the three girls home. Their father, John, was there and he spent an hour or so with the girls before he headed off to work at the second restaurant that evening. Some reports noted the Chans had a third restaurant by this time as well. Carmen was tasked with putting her younger sisters to bed after this. It was around 8.40pm the girls had been watching a documentary about Marilyn Munro in Carmen's room when an ad came on and they went out to the kitchen to fetch a snack. To their shock and terror, a man wearing a dark green or dark blue balaclava with stitching around the eyes and mouth confronted them in the kitchen. He was wielding a long kitchen knife and he ordered Carmen and Carly back to the bedroom. The youngest, Karen, had heard the girls screaming and the commotion coming down the hallway. She was hiding behind the door in the bedroom when her sisters arrived back the intruder behind them with a knife. He demanded Carly and Karen get into the cupboard in the bedroom, saying to them, don't worry, I won't hurt you, I only want your money. He then pushed Carmen's bed up against the cupboard to trap both Carly and Karen inside. The girls called out to Carmen, who was dressed in a white short sleeve nightie, as the man then dragged her from the room by her hair. Carly and Karen managed to escape the cupboard around 10 minutes later, but the masked man and their sister Carmen were both gone. They rang their father at his restaurant and said, Daddy, come home. A man with a knife took Carmen. We're frightened. By 10.30pm, 14 police vehicles had swooped on the Chan's residence in Templestow, the property awash in a sea of blue and red light, both Phyllis and John's cries audible over the noise of a police chopper scouring the roads from the sky above. Big manhunt is underway in Melbourne tonight following the abduction at knife point of a schoolgirl. The abduction took place around 9 o'clock last night. 13-year-old Carmen Chan was babysitting her two younger sisters, aged 9 and 7, while her parents were at work in the family restaurant. The family Toyota, parked at the front of the house, had been daubed with slogans saying, payback, more to come, and a reference to Asian drug money. The Chans run a Chinese restaurant in Bulleen and a takeaway outlet at Lower Plenty. Mr Chan has been unable to provide police with a motive for the abduction, 
or the graffiti on the car. Is he known to police in any way at all? Mr Chan is not, no. He's a very, very well-respected man in the community. Right away, police had the suspicion this was again Mr Krull who'd struck from the descriptions that Carly and Karen had both given. But again, there were red herrings that cast doubt on this assertion, the big one being the aforementioned spray painting on the Chan's late model Toyota Camry, which read, Payback Asian drug dealer on the bonnet and windscreen and along the driver's side, more and more to come. Police had to investigate this angle, obviously, and they would, but in the time after the abduction, they went full-scale on tracking the offender and Carmen. Her abductor had led them out of the kitchen sliding door, through the garden, across the tennis court, over the fence, a two-metre drop to the road, before going 300 metres down the street to an overgrown vacant block in Church Road. Here, sniffer dogs lost the trail, the police formed the belief that the abductor had parked his car at this location and taken Carmen in the vehicle from there. Again, it was evident that the man had staked out the chans in the time leading up to Carmen's abduction. There were no obvious indications that children lived at this address. There was no play equipment outside, no bikes left lying about the place, yet he knew there were children home and home alone for that matter. He was also very familiar with the area, not only where to park his getaway vehicle, but the property itself, how to get in and out so efficiently. There was suggestions that a tradesman had knocked on the Chan's door around two weeks prior to Carmen's abduction. This guy was said to be looking for work. It wasn't clear if they'd given him work or if he'd gone into their home at all, but I'd imagine this lead would have been investigated by detectives. Another avenue police clearly had to wade through was the suggestion that John Chan had some sort of connection with the drug trade, or potentially a business deal that had gone sour. The police investigation, at least in an official capacity, concluded that John Chan was squeaky clean, and it was determined, like previously, that Mr Krull had left a red herring in the form of this spray-painted message to send police off in a different direction. He'd previously done this with the bogus phone call, the ransom demands, and even one time, which we didn't mention earlier, he'd even pretended to be in cahoots with another abductor on the scene, talking to someone who didn't respond and in all likelihood wasn't present. Police were unable to turn over any leads from their inquiries that led in the direction of a suspect in the initial stages of this investigation. The Chans, having seen what happened in previous abductions, also conducted an emotional press conference pleading to the man in hopes of him having a shred of decency that would lead to the safe return of their daughter. And this is the traumatic clip we heard at the very beginning of this episode with Phyllis Chan understandably overcome by emotion at the thought of her daughter Carmen going through what Nicola, Sharon and potentially many others had previously. As the days passed, there was no sign of Carmen, no ransom demand, so police released a Need Your Help poster which displayed photos of Sharon, Nicola and Carmen noting a $300,000 reward for information leading to Mr Krull's capture and conviction. This is quite a famous poster and many people will recognise it. It was widely distributed to every home in Victoria and to some parts of New South Wales and South Australia. The poster was plastered onto billboards and in bus stops, buses and trams across Melbourne too. We'll post this on our socials for you all to see. In the time after Carmen's abduction, Phyllis Chan wrote a letter to Mr Krull, pleading for him to return Carmen. Carly and Karen were reported to have begun sleepwalking, peeping through their windows in hopes of Carmen being sent back to them. 
Phyllis even included a code in this letter to Mr. Krull, which only Carmen would be able to solve for him. That code would show a P.O. box number where he could retrieve ransom money should he want it. Aside from the obvious concerns the Chans had about Carmen's welfare, they were also worried about her regular medications she'd not had access to for both asthma and a prior bout of glandular fever she'd had. Carly and Karen too wrote letters to their sister's abductor, asking for her safe return so she could help them with their homework. Weeks went by and soon turned into months, and news of Mr Krull and leads in Carmen's abduction dried up almost completely. This was until April the 9th, 1992, just four days shy of the 12-month anniversary of Carmen's abduction. A man was walking his dog along Edgars Creek in Thomastown, north of Melbourne, near the intersection of Marnie's Road and High Street. There was a landfill area nearby, this was a pretty desolate spot this, and there'd been some earthworks done recently too at the rear of a nearby electricity substation. This is the second mention of an electricity substation so far. While leading his pooch through this area, the man saw what appeared to be a human skull. He wasn't sure if it was. He inspected it briefly before returning home and telling his mother. He then called Thomastown Police to report the find. A man walking his dogs through this industrial desert in Melbourne's north stumbled across a skull on Thursday evening. It had several bullet wounds in the side. After further investigations, police recovered the rest of the body and although they're yet to establish an identity, they're confident they know who it is. Whilst we don't have any positive information at this point of time, it is uh, quite a possibility that it is in fact uh, Carmen. The area was sealed off and underwent extensive forensic examination. More decomposed human remains were found, but they left forensic experts Dr John Clement and Dr Sheena Chan little to analyse. They had enough, however, to test and conclude that these remains were those of Carmen Chan. It was revealed that she'd been shot at least three times in the back of the head. As the public flooded police detectives with information after this was made public, the newly established Operation Spectrum undertook the painstaking task of sifting through all of the leads coming in. Things had now turned in the Mr Cruel case, escalating from child abduction to cold-blooded murder. In the time after the discovery of her daughter's remains, Phyllis Chan and Carmen's two younger sisters, Carly and Karen, conducted a traditional Buddhist ceremony on the barren wasteland where Carmen had been found. They offered up food, flowers and songs. In the time after the devastating murder of their daughter Carmen, John and Phyllis Chan separated, the weight of the whole ordeal clearly too much for their marriage to withstand. John returned overseas shortly after this. Phyllis remained with her daughters and ultimately changed her surname back to her maiden name of Lamb. A divide in the police force began to form amongst investigating detectives too. Some weren't convinced that this was the work of Mr Krull. Others were. At the end of the day, no one knew for sure either way. There was no reasoning, no motive that could be clearly established as to why young Carmen had been brutally executed in such a fashion. This boogeyman left no physical evidence behind just the smattering of clues and details we'd covered in this episode so far. That and public tips were all police had to try and track down this meticulous and calculating predator. We know now, not for sure, but in all probability, this was Mr Krull's last attack. At least, the last one police have publicly linked, but it remains unsolved to this day. In the time after this, parents and children across Victoria were terrified, 
Mr. Cruel, this murderous abductor, was on the loose. Kids were having nightmares, parents were sleeping with their children, security system purchases went through the roof, all inspired by the wave of terror this man had perpetrated across the greater Melbourne region. And that's where we put a pin in this tale for this week, Chloe. We've got a whole lot more to cover in part two, many lingering questions about the motivation behind Carmen's murder, and we'll be moving from the facts and reports about this case into the realm of speculation, questions, theories, and suspects. Your thoughts for now. Yeah, this case is the stuff nightmares are made of. I think maybe for both of us, but for me definitely, this was really close to home, you know, growing up in Melbourne's East. And growing up, Mr. Cruel was almost an urban legend. His crimes were so prolific and horrible that it's something that everyone knew and feared, or at least I certainly did. And I'm not sure if I've conflated the talk of it over the years, but it just seemed to be something that everyone was very fearful of. And all these girls, what they went through was just awful. And I'm, you know, sure his other victims as well. I feel so terrible for them and their families as always. And I agree with the reports that it's suspected that he was involved in other crimes. The thing that's so chilling is he was too calm and planned for these crimes to be his first. Even his understanding of how to throw off police is unsettling. The calls and the spray painting, that level of planning shows some serious depravity to me. It's really sickening and I hate that he hasn't been caught. That's pretty much it from me at this stage. What are your thoughts this week, Sean? Yeah, my the most of my thoughts sort of will, will probably come out at the end of, of next week's episode. But, um, you know, it's just tragic to hear of what these families went through, particularly the Chan family. Now, obviously, we have a lot more to cover in terms of all the, the little pieces we've outlined this week, series, suspects, etc. You know, that will be interesting to get into next week. For me, it's the calculating nature of this guy's crimes, you know, the planning, like you said, the execution of the abductions, which led to that widespread terror and panic, you know, like you said, it's truly the stuff of nightmares. The earlier crimes, yeah, definitely, you know, the police seemed fairly confident that there was a dozen to sort of 14 more cases, but, you know, obviously we don't have details of all that stuff. There does appear to have been an escalation and evolving in, in the way he carried these out. Um, so, yeah, look, that's it from me for now. And uh, next week we will get into some some more uh, details around the theories and some of those questions and some of those suspects, some who haven't really been spoken about a lot before. Yeah. Well, um, I think we definitely need a happy thought this week. So um, <laughs> I'll go first. So mine is that... We're living in some dark times down here in Victoria. Um, I feel like I've been banging on about it a bit the last couple of weeks, but it's my reality at the moment. Um, But my happy thought is Brett Sutton, so Victoria's chief health (laughs) officer. Um, Everyone is obsessed with him in Victoria. Well, I'm going to say a lot of women. There's become this thing that (laughs) people are saying potentially Stockholm Syndrome, the fact that we've been going through this traumatic event and he seems to come out very articulate, kind and calm, telling us that everything's going to be okay. People have just fallen in love with him and there's Duna covers being printed with his face on it, phone covers, coffee mugs. Um, There's a meme of um, there's a famous Simpsons scene with Homer dressed in a wedding dress and there was one that said, you know, me every time Brett Sutton comes on my screen, you know, just (laughs) so funny and I'm just finding when there's so much heaviness in the media at the moment 
that little vein of obsession is I'm just finding it so funny and awesome. So that's my happy thought. <laughs> he didn't front up to a couple of press conferences, did he? And everyone started getting really worried. Yeah, well, Sky News um, <laughs> published that he had resigned and a friend, this is how, because I've, I've been posting a lot on social media of how funny I think and some people I don't think, they just th- are thinking that I'm in love with him as well, but I just think it's funny. And a friend had texted me <laughs> saying, Babe, do you know he's resigned? Are you going okay? <laughs> <laughs> is it the uh, is it the silver fox thing? Do you reckon that that that, that, that distinguished sort of look, the Clooney type sort of, you know, because that happened. There was a few years ago. Yeah. Those are uh, I think just for men sold out of like a like the grey silver <laughs> rinse because there was a thing at, at one point. You know, maybe around that, you know, that sort of. Uh, uh, McDreamy, Patrick Dempsey sort of time in, in life. Maybe it was around then, you know, where they're... <laughs> Maybe. I think it's partially physical and I think, well, speaking a little bit objectively, he's genuinely so articulate and kind from what I've seen him present. And Well, but I would think you know, that I'd... that's a bit of a prerequisite for the position he holds, like if he was inarticulate and... <laughs> I, I mean, have you heard all politics? Like, you know, some people in, in health and <laughs> other areas don't exactly. <laughs> but I think it's partly that he just seems so calm and serene. You know, they've all popped a bit more grey hair and wrinkles probably and kilos in the past couple of months because of the stress. But, you know, he's just holding it together. He's the calm kind of water running through all the storm. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Very good. Well, my happy thought is uh, fairly basic. I've actually had the week off work, which has been good. Um, Although I haven't been able to really go anywhere or do anything um, (laughs) other than uh, play a brief bit of golf by myself with a mask on, um, (laughs) it was (laughs) nice to have a week away from the usual stuff. So, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I spent most of it diving headfirst into the research for this terrible case that we've covered today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but anyway, hopefully it uh, comes out all right and we do it. We do it justice. So uh, that's it for me. Yeah, awesome. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail dot com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. You can also make one-off donations to us on the supporter feature, which is at the very bottom of the show notes. Uh, I think we've had a few more, but I've neglected to write them down close. So we'll uh, we'll carry those <laughs> well, over. Thank you next week. <laughs> yeah, we'll carry them over until... Uh, Next week, we're also contemplating adding a new tier to Patreon, which will be uh, exclusively uh, episodes of Chloe discussing Brett Sutton, (laughs) uh, which is going to (laughs) be... Pandemic-only content. Exactly, yeah. I think that'll be interesting. (laughs) Uh, But, no, thanks again for listening, folks. We appreciate your support. We'll be back next week with part two of this, uh, this episode and we'll catch you all then. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.